If you have your Bibles, Redeemer, I'd invite you to turn them uh, to Acts chapter 28, uh, Acts 28, and uh, we're nearing uh, the end of the book of Acts, and so uh, Paul is about to make it to Rome, uh, but before he gets there, he gets a God-given refuge after the raging storm, and that's what I want us to consider this morning, this God-given refuge after the raging, raging storm. We'll be reading Acts 21, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. After we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, uh, justice. And you'll notice that it's capitalized there, and and that's because uh, there was a Greek goddess of justice named Dike. And they thought that Dike was executing justice on Paul and has not allowed him to live. Verse five, however, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, Uh, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word, and thank you for being a speaking God. There are numerous cares of the world that can infringe upon our time, and so we pray, Lord Jesus, that by your spirit that you will put these things at bay and that you will allow us to see what's truly happening here. We are gathered at the feet of King Jesus, and Jesus is speaking to his people by your servant, and to the degree that your servant rightly divides and proclaims your word, you, King Jesus, are speaking to them. And so I pray, Lord, that they would uh, see you and not me. I pray, Lord, that you will build us up. And I pray for those, Lord, who are in much need of refuge. Would you remind them this hour that they have it and that you are at work to bring it to them. May we leave here an encouraged and thankful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bazar, Ramoth, Golan. These are names of six important cities in the Bible. And if you were an Old Testament Jew and you heard those six city names in the same sentence, then you would know exactly 
what these cities are. These are cities of refuge. In the book of Numbers chapter 35 and Joshua 20, as Israel is getting their land and the allotment thereof, the Lord commands the people of Israel to set apart these strategically placed cities throughout all of Israel to be cities of refuge. If you were uh, a manslayer and you happen to uh, take someone's life on accident and the avenger of that person's life were pursuing you, then God said that you should flee to one of those six cities and that city was to be refuge for you. It was guarded by the Levitical priest and you could not be touched until you had a fair trial, a city of refuge. You get to the book of Ruth, and Boaz uses that same idea, except he expands it for us. He says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, the the city of refuge, according to um, Boaz, is not just restricted to those six cities that God himself gives refuge to his people when they flee under his own wings. And this is uh, enhanced even more in David. And David has just survived war in 2 Samuel chapter 22. He says, God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my stronghold and refuge, you save me from violence. You hear that? That there's a theme that God is a God of refuge. He delights to give his people a place of protection and abundant provision. Now, it's no coincidence that look at verse one of our passage this morning. Notice what Luke says. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. What do you think Malta means? refuge. Now I wonder if Paul, who makes it to this island and who learns that this island's name means refuge, I just kind of wonder, does he, does he like wink towards God? Does he like stop as he figures out where we are and say, okay, daddy, I see what you're doing. I I, I see what you're up to. You're giving us a place of refuge. Now, it makes perfect sense. When you look at the context and what's happened, that what happened to Paul for two years, he's in prison. Who wanted Paul dead while he was in prison? The Jews. Where did they just, what just happened to them in Acts 27? They were in a 14-day storm that took, that, 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 that demolished the ship, that the only reason they made it to the shoreline was because they could float on the pieces of the ship that had been crashed, that while they were on the ship, the sailors wanted to leave it, the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners, they threw out all of their grain, and then they so happily, right, stumble upon and wash up on a shore of an island in the middle of nowhere, whose name means refuge? You see God's sense of humor there? After the raging storm, 
He gives them refuge. Now, how long do they stay here on this island? Look at verse 11. After three months, we set sail. So 14 days, they almost lost their lives. And the Lord says, let me just run that ship above this shore, and I'm going to give you three months of abundant protection, abundant provision. I love this about Luke. He will not deny the hardships that they just endured. And neither will he minimize this season of blessing and encouragement. He puts them side by side. Life is dangerous. And God is good. Life is dangerous. And refuge is coming. You almost lost your life. You are without food and without clothing, but I'm going to provide. That what you see in Luke, he's holding these two things up side by side. Now, why is this important for us this morning? In the path of following Jesus, we don't know what we're going to endure. This world is dangerous. We will suffer. We will hurt one another, be hurt by one another. We will endure hardship and tragedy. But that's not the end of the story. It's right, and I mean it's right, for us to expect, wait for, and pray towards seasons of abundant protection and provision and refreshment to only view the Christian life as grueling and hard and taxing and to not view what we see here this morning of joy and provision and hope. It diminishes the very nature of God. God himself says weeping will endure for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. God himself says, there is a time to mourn and there is a time to laugh. There is a season to grieve and a season of dancing is coming. You see, one of the tricks of the enemy is to short circuit those truths side by side. That we can tend to think that where we are right now, the trials we're enduring right now, the hardship we're encountering right now, we tend to think that they don't have a shelf life. We tend to think that there is no expiration date on them. And God says that is the farthest thing from the truth. Because of who he is, because of how much he loves us, because of what he's done for us in Jesus. For the believer, times of refreshing are always coming. Always coming. And the question becomes, do we believe that God is after this and is for this and will bring this to pass? Look, I'm not saying that God doesn't become our refuge for us in the times of storm. That's true. That's what God was last week. His angel was navigating all of that, telling Paul what to do, what to say. 
God was with him in it. But what you see this week, God says, storm, be gone. Abundant blessing, abundant provision. Now, why is this important for us? Because I think it's a reminder to us that whatever we're going through, that it'll pass. It'll get better. Because God is for us. And God is with us. And he will bring it to pass. Now, what I want to do is just look at it here in the text. And I want to unpack three different aspects of this refuge that, that Paul experiences on this island. And the first thing is God's refuge produces unmatched safety. That's the first thing. God's refuge produces unmatched safety. As humans, we long for safety. It's why you lock your doors at night. It's why you uh, set your alarm at night. It's why you wear your seatbelts. It's why you install covenant eyes and bark on your devices or your kids' devices. It's why we have a criminal justice system to, to help keep some safe. It's why countries have militaries to keep people safe, right? We love safety, but it's important to us because it's important to God. That if we're concerned about it, God is more. And that's what you see in our passage. You'll notice how verse chapter 27 ends and Luke is redundant. In verse 44 of chapter 27, he says, and the rest floated on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was so that we that all were brought safely to land. And then look at verse one of our passage this morning. And we were brought safely through when we then learned that the island was called Malta. So, so two things, two verses back to back where, where Luke is saying safety, 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 safety. Now, it's interesting here how the, the verb that Luke uses here, because it's in the passive tense. And that, that's so important. It's not active in the sense that, that, that we made ourselves safe. That's active. I did this. We did this. No, this is passive, right? In the sense that we were brought there. We were carried there. We were carried through the storm and carried to this island. In other words, we were the recipients of someone else doing the bringing. And you and I know who that is. It's God ultimately. It's God ultimately who steered that ship. It's God ultimately who landed them right where they were. But it gets better, right? It gets better when you keep reading the passage and you'll notice that Paul is bitten by a snake. And not just any snake, it's a snake that the islanders presume to be poisonous. And so we think what Paul is doing is he, he's helping them build a fire. So he goes and gets firewood because it's raining and it's cold. And he walks over and he adds his logs to the fire. And all of a sudden, something in his hand is not a log. It's a snake. And the snake, being aware of the warmth, does not want to go in the fire. And so it latches onto Paul. And so the people, the natives, are looking at him like he is a dead man walking. And they're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for him to swell up or just croak over. Now, notice what happened. Verse 5, however... He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down. But then when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. And so all of a sudden, what you see here is that, 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 that Paul has more than just safely arriving on the shore, that he is walking into some unprecedented apocalyptic safety. Now, I think this looks back and forward. It's the reason why I had Zach read from Luke 10. Now, Acts is written by Luke. The Gospel of Luke is written by Luke. And so sometimes these two books have to kind of inform one another. Now, what happened in Luke 10, written by the same guy who wrote this? But what happened? Jesus sends out the disciples and he sends them out. Take no money, take no money bags, take no extra clothing. And you go out and you witness. And then when they came back, they came back rejoicing like Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The demons, they listen to us. And then Jesus says, oh, y'all better slow down. I was there when Satan fell like lightning. That's what Jesus told him. He says, behold, I have given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, Paul was not a follower of Jesus at this time, but it seems like Luke is saying that that same apostolic safety that they got in Luke 10. He says, Paul, you're going to get some of that when that serpent bites you, you're going to tread on him. As a matter of fact, look at what happens to the serpent. The serpent goes into the fire and Paul stays alive. And this is where I think it's looking forward. It's looking forward to the end of the Bible. At the end in the book of Revelation, you see a serpent and what happens to the serpent? He is thrown in the fire. And then what happens? God's people have safety forever and ever and ever and ever. And so what you're seeing is this looks back and this looks forward. But what Jesus is reminding us of is God's people he will make you safe. And here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to over-spiritualize this. And here's what I mean. Oh, Pastor L, you know the ultimate safety we have. That's in Jesus. Yes, and I'm going to get there. But what I'm talking about right here is God mysteriously and powerfully protects and guards his people. And some of you have tasted that. You've gotten bad doctor reports. And your God says, no, not now. Some of you have been in accidents or should have been in accidents. And the Lord says, no, not now. Some of you have had hard things to happen and perhaps you ought not be alive. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm keeping your life. 10,000 may fall at your side, but I will not in this moment let anything harm you. And we ought to praise him for it. But we also ought not over-physicalize the passage or to to under-spiritualize it. On another level, this is ours in Jesus, that nothing will separate you from his love, that nothing will snatch you from his hand, not dementia, not cancer, not car wrecks, not old age. You will make it safely home 
because you have a sure and steady captain at the helm of the ship and you will land on those golden shores of Zion and no one can snatch you out of your father's hand. That is yours, whatever life throws your way. On January the 15th, 2009, a plane left LaGuardia Airport in New York, and as it ascended, uh, it, hit, it, it, it collided with, with two flocks of geese, not only in, on one engine, but on both engines. Both engines swallowed flocks of geese. And now an airplane engine is designed to function. If one engine goes down, you can still fly the plane on one engine. Am I right? I'm right, all right. See, there, y'all don't think I knew that, right? Both engines shot. And you can go to YouTube and you can Google Captain Sully and, and the Hudson miracle. And NTSB says this is the best aviation ditching ever. And as they're ascending, the engines fail. And you can hear him on the radio talking to whoever they talk to. And he's saying, engine one, down. Engine two, down, no thrust. And they're telling him, land at LaGuardia, land in New Jersey. He says, I can't make it to LaGuardia. I can't make it back to New Jersey. And so if you watch the video, he goes up and he makes a U-turn. He says, this plane has to go down in the Hudson. And that plane is landed and crashes into the Hudson River. And not one passenger dies. That's King Jesus. You will all be safe and accounted for. He will bring you home. You have in him unmatched safety. The second thing we see in this passage is, is God's refuge brings unusual kindness so the first thing is unmatched safety. Second point is unusual kindness. Now, here's what we start to see in our passage. And I think before we look at the text, I, I, I want to jog your memory. That how many times have you been going through hardship and God chose to, for his sovereign purposes, use non-believers to just shower you with grace? If Jesus really is on the throne and all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth is his, then this necessarily means that Jesus, in the giving of refuge to his people, can use anyone, anywhere, from any background and with any worldview to be a blessing to you. Maybe it was your cycling group or your hobby that brings you joy in life. Or maybe it's an Uber driver who drove you home. Or maybe it's the person who made the pillow in a factory in some remote land that you sleep on every night. Or maybe it's a movie by a pagan director that tells a beautiful story of hope. Or maybe it was a doctor whose bedside manners were beautiful and you felt seen and heard and understood. Or maybe it was a pagan boss knowing what you're going through 
they gave you time off and were moved with pity. Or maybe it was a pagan doctor who did a masterful surgery to remove the cancer so that you get 10 to 20 more years of life on this side. Or maybe it was someone who was an organ donor and they died and you have their kidney. Or in my case, their ACL. And you can now walk and run and play and live. When Jesus has the power that he tells us he has, he can use anyone, anywhere, to be a blessing to his people. We are the ones that need the eyes of faith to see it. Now, you'll see this in this passage. Look at verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness. That word for kindness that you see there, the word for hospitality that you see in verse 7, is from the word that we get our word philanthropy. That word for native, it's the word barbarian. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about barbarians, I think about these big, big brawly men wrapped up in like, a, they, they've like skinned a bear and they're wearing bear around like they're wearing bear and they got, you know, a, a club that they've carved out of wood with metal spikes on it. Like when I think of like barbarian, that's kind of what I think. But that's not actually true to this passage that barbarians in, in, in Paul's day were those who did not speak Greek. So they, they were not the most learned, uh, but they, they, they were not barbarians in the sense that we would use the term now. But Luke says that these people were unusually kind to us. I think this is Luke's way of saying that, man, we just didn't expect this. We didn't deserve this. And this was extraordinarily timely. It's unusual because we are a group of 276 ragtag shipwrecked people who show up on this island. They could have locked their doors. They could have shunned us. They could have told us to move on to another part of the beach, but they didn't. What did they do? Luke says, and it's important, look at verse 2. They kindled a fire and they welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So you get the image there. How many people were there? He says, they welcomed us all. How many people were on the ship? 276. That's a really big fire. That's a lot of firewood. It's 300 people. It's about how many people are in here right now. And we shipwreck on a beach, right? And some barbarians decide to make fire for us in the rain. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island. So he's probably the governor or at least one of the most wealthiest on the island. And his name, uh, Publius. And we think, right, if you go to church tradition, that this guy became a bishop in the church, that he was a bishop. He became a convert of Jesus. He received us and he entertained us hospitably for three days. Now, I don't know about you, but they lost their food. They lost their clothing. They lost their ship. And all of a sudden, this wealthy man brings them in his home for three days. And it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. And they also honored us greatly. They honored us with many honors. 
And when we were about to sell, they put on board whatever we needed. And that's important because they lost everything. Everything was lost when that ship hit the way, I mean, hit the, 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 the rocks. They come there empty handed, but they leave there with every single thing they need. These people perhaps had never heard of Yahweh, never heard of Jesus, never heard of the law. And yet they are bearing witness that the law of God is on their hearts. They are moved with compassion. Now, Jesus' name is not in this. But you're starting to see fellow image bearers image him to his disciples. Who else made a fire for his disciples after a rough night at sea in the book of John? Jesus. Who else cooked food for his disciples when they had nothing that night before? Jesus. Who else pardons real murderers and frees them? Jesus. Paul is a murderer. He confessed that in Acts 26. And what you see in Jesus is his sins have been atoned for. Who else looks at people impartially? Jesus. Who else brings people in their home and throws a feast and makes certain they lack no good thing? Jesus. And so here's what we have to embrace, believers. When we see image bearers, non-believers, treating us with kindness, the, the, the kindness of God, we have to, by faith, understand that behind their actions, it's King Jesus being kind to you and being gracious to you. And it ought to result in us giving praise and honor and adoration to his name, even though the people who have treated us thus might not know him at the moment. We see this right working in, in history, right? A couple weeks ago, we talked about Elon Musk, who was a professed non-believer. And he decides out of the goodwill of his heart to shoot a satellite in space to give Ukrainians access to the Internet so that Christian pastors there in Ukraine can meet with Christian pastors and counselors here in America and we can pray together and we can equip them to triage and to care for the orphan and the widow? Like, 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 who does that? You do that if you're King Jesus. King Jesus does not need a Christian businessman to shoot something in space to serve his church over there when King Jesus has all authority and power and might on his hand. He can use whoever he wants to to advance his kingdom. And so, yes, Elon Musk does that. But for the Christian, we see beyond that. Yes, King Jesus is behind it and he is reigning and he is ruling and he is giving his people refuge over there. We need the eyes of faith to see that common grace expressed to us is not just common grace. 
It is his grace. It is his goodness that is mediated from them to us for our refuge and peace. That's what God does for them on this island. They lack food. They lack shelter. They lack protection. And God gives it to them through pagans. I hear you, Tosh. <laughs> I see you, Tosh. Last point, I want to end it here. God's refuge provides them with an unprecedented opportunity to serve others. I don't know about you, but when I think about refuge, and this is just my selfish, sinful self talking to you today. When I think about refuge, I think about me. What do I need? Right? I need some protection. I need some relief. I need some food. I need some shelter. I need somewhere to lay my head, Lord. I need you. I, 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 I. And here's what this passage is going to do. It's going to hold two things in proper tension. And here it is. God, in giving us his refuge, is going to care for us. He's going to give us safety, us kindness, right? But... He is simultaneously giving us a beautiful opportunity to serve him in that refuge. Now, what's the next book in the Bible after Acts? Talk to me. Romans. Thank you. You turn one or two pages and you'll get there. Question for you. Which one was written first? Acts or Romans? Okay, it's good. So let's read Romans. I, I promise you, I'm not trying to trick you up. I'm trying, to not, I'm trying not to show you how much I know. Like I, that, I promise you that's not what I'm doing. But let's just kind of read Romans 1, 9 through 13, if you will. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at, at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. And so, here, all right, look at me real quick. We know which one is written first. Romans is written first. Romans, Paul is expressing, I want to get to you. I want to get to you. I want to get to you. And I've been hindered. So this predates what's happening here by at least five years. Now, read verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So, five years before showing up on this island, Paul wrote them a letter saying, I want to preach the gospel. I'm under, I'm under obligation for Greeks and barbarians. Now, here is where I wish the ESV would be consistent. Because the word for barbarians in Romans 1.14, the only other time it's used outside of Colossians, is in our passage this morning. Let me make it make sense to you. 
Paul writes five years before he shipwrecked on Malta. I want to preach the gospel to Gentiles. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. And oh, I wish that I could preach the gospel to barbarians. And you know what God says? All right, Paul, I got you. I'm going to make good on that. I'm going to let you go through this storm. I'm going to send you to an island called Refuge. And guess who you're going to meet? You're going to meet the barbarians you said you're under obligation to preach to five years ago when you wrote them the book. You see what's happening here? God sells him right there to that ship to experience the kindness of these native peoples He's already written that he wants to preach the gospel to native people. And then he wakes up. Oh, here they are right here. Can you imagine Paul showing up to them, writing that he wants to preach the gospel and only setting up a hospital on Malta? You can't. What Paul does when he gets here, he heals them. He puts fire, wood to the fire. He goes into the home of this sick man. He touches and prays to the the Most High God for healing. He's doing more than just healing them. He's already written that I can't wait to preach the gospel to them. You lay this on top of what's happening in Luke 10 where Paul has had the power to tread over serpents. You lay this on top of Luke 10, where he's had nothing, no knapsack, no food, no nothing. You lay this on top of this healing that he's doing. You lay this on top of the hospitality that these people are receiving, Paul. And and Jesus tells his disciples back then, if they receive you, they receive me. You see, I think what's happening here, based on the response of these native people, when they bless Paul and give Paul whatever he needs when he leaves, that is not just them sharing their wealth. That's them treating them like family. Willie James Jenkins has a great book. He's an African-American expositor, uh, one of the only ones I could find uh, on Acts. And here's what he writes. The Maltese's action toward the shipwreck was a surprise of grace and kindness. And the church must see that these are signs of the Spirit's presence with people as a precursor to the holy joining that is being orchestrated by God. It will be difficult to believe that Paul would not have explained in detail in whose name he had healed and by what power such healing was made possible. Paul's gestures towards them announce a new community. The Maltese exposed a desired pattern, help given, hospitality offered and received, and God present to heal. These Maltese offered him community and blessed them on their departure as anyone would with the departure of family and friends. This too gestures the joining with God that Paul had preached 
And so when Paul speaks about this new church where there's no respecter of persons, where there's Jew and Greek and barbarian and Scythian and slave and free, that what you're seeing in Acts is this is coming to fruition right here before he goes to Rome. You're seeing a picture of this beautiful family of God. I think these barbarians are receptive to Jesus. And it's the Jews who have rejected Paul. It's the Jews who want to kill him and won't let him in their houses. And it's these native people who are doing exactly what Jesus said in Luke 10. Do you see that this refuge is from God so that Paul can provide the same refuge to the needy around him? I'll close with this. I just learned who Mike Schultz was this week. My wife and I were watching television, and the Olympics came on. And I was like, did, did NBC just mess up? I, I thought the, I know the Olympic viewing was down, but I didn't know like it was that down, that they're kind of replaying it again. Like, what is going on? And all of a sudden, this, the, you see these guys like skiing down a hill, and they're amputees, and they have prosthetics on. And I'm like, oh. This is the Paralympics. And so they interviewed this guy named Mike Schultz, and he had a horrific snowboarding accident that, that, that almost killed him, but he had to have his leg amputated. And he found refuge, these are his words, in his shop. He was doing extreme sports, worked in a mechanic shop, knew how to fix things, and he discovered that, that as an amputee, the normal prosthetics don't work. You can't get on a snowboard with a regular prosthetic. You can't get on a snowmobile with a regular prosthetic. And so he decided to create his own. And so he talks about the therapeutic side of, of, of bending metal and, and attaching uh, springs on this prosthetic leg. And then you see him competing. And it was a sanctuary for him to be able to do that, to have a sense of normalcy again. And then this is where the interview took a turn. He's racing down a hill, and he's racing four other racers from around the world. And guess what they're racing him with? His own leg that he designed. And the journalist was blown away. You could run laps around them. Why would you then benefit from this thing and then turn around and share it with other people? It's a higher love. It's a love for humanity. It's him receiving and creating this beautiful thing and then giving it to others to use. That is what God calls us to. We're not to be grace hoarders and refuge hoarders. We're to receive his goodness and his refuge and then to turn and freely offer it to others. And that's the way of the cross, isn't it? It's King Jesus 
who experience this closeness and intimacy and connection with the Father. And it's King Jesus who said, I want them in on this. May this be true for us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. I pray for those, Lord, who are in tangible need of your presence, of your restoration, of your kindness. I pray, Lord, that they would see it, that they would see your hand at work on them, in them, and around them. Jesus, we praise you and adore you for the unmatched safety, the sweet kindness you bestow upon us. But also, Lord, if we have eyes of faith to see it, how you intend to use our rest and refuge uh, in the service of others. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.